0: I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Moises Naim. Moises is a senior associate at the International Economics Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also the chief international columnist for Spain's El País, a column which is read, I I know well, throughout all of Latin America in addition to Spain. And he also writes for Italy's La Repubblica, and he writes a column for the Financial Times A list. Previously, Moises was the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine. In the early 1990s, he served as Venezuela's Minister of Trade and Industry. And he was also director of Venezuela's Central Bank and executive director of the World Bank. I think Moises was uh, the Minister of Trade for Venezuela when he was about 15. (laughs) More than anything, Moises is a living, breathing argument against the thesis of his own book, at least when it comes to the role of public intellectuals, it's hard to see how their power is decaying when you consider Moises' influence. He is truly one of today's great interpreters on the global stage, translating what happens in Latin America to American audiences, what happens in Europe to Latin American audiences, and he does this amazing triangulation between all of those regions where he has such a tremendous following. He is a master at discerning and translating important trends in our politics, economics, and the way we live, as he's done in this book and as he's done in tackling the question of what happened to power. Moises also has a great sense of humor, I can attest to. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege to introduce to you Dr. Moises Naim.
1: So, of course, you shouldn't believe any of that. Uh, it's, it's, let me start by trying to lower uh, the overblown and exaggerated uh, <laughs> introduction. Uh, Andres and I have been friends for many years, and uh, that, uh, his introduction is just a manifestation of that. Uh, thank you very much for, for being here uh, this evening. Thank you very much to Sokalo, to Rand. I'm delighted. Um, I'm going to speak for a little while, and then I will very much look forward to to you explaining why everything I said is wrong uh, (laughs) and why I should not be thinking this way. Uh, You all know uh, this is a sophisticated audience and needs no explanation uh, about the fact that power is shifting. We know that. Power is shifting from Europe and the United States to Asia, uh, from north to south, from presidential palaces to public squares. Uh, from large companies to startups, even in some places from men to women. You know, not as much as uh, we all think uh, it should be, but there's also a little bit of that is also happening. And uh, and of course, it's very important. Some of these uh, um, transfers and shifts of power have been with us uh, in the past in history. But surely never uh, to the scale that we now uh, are, are witnessing. Uh, power changes in the world uh, used to be very localized, it used to be regional. You know, you, you have in the Middle Ages and the, in the medieval times, you, you had a little bit of this fragmented, highly fragmented. Uh, uh, structure of power, but it w- was highly localized. Now it's global. Now, yeah, yeah it's very hard to find a, a spot in the planet where some of the things, uh, some of the mutations of power uh, that uh, are not taking place. So it's happening everywhere, and it's happening to everyone. Uh, we have seen um, all kinds of uh, manifestations of new ways of empowering individuals, of organizations, uh, new manifestations in which power is mutating in important ways. The book argues that yes all of that is happening and is a profound change, but it uh, there, there also argues that there's more going on with power. Power is not just shifting, power is decaying. Power is uh, decaying because it's easier to get, harder to use and easier to lose. It's becoming more transient, It's becoming more constrained. Those that have power have more constraints in using it than their predecessors. And I invite you to think, as I talk, think about very powerful institutions. Think about very powerful individuals. And go back uh, 20, 30 years and think about people that were in those positions or institutions, those same institutions 20, 30 years ago. And uh, I will... My, I will pose that uh, the predecessors of those in power today had more power than our contemporary power wielders. That doesn't mean, of course, uh, that the, there are not uh, huge depositories of power in the world today. Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and the Vatican and the Pentagon and uh, uh, you know Google and uh, uh, Facebook, uh, you know. I'm not arguing that these are not places, and uh, they are not individuals that don't have a lot of power. The new Chinese president has a lot of power. President Obama has a lot of power. Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, has a lot of power. So I'm not denying that. And uh, uh, I am just saying that the power that they wield is more constrained, and they can do less with it. The battles for power are as intense as ever. People are fighting for power. The difference is that these battles, and to the victors, to the people that win those battles, uh, they quickly discover that they're yielding diminishing returns. That, That once they get there, they soon discover that they can do less with it than in the past. Uh, The firstness of these battles masks the increasingly evanescent uh, nature of power itself, its fragility, and the new multiple limits and constraints that uh, limit what they can do. I argue that this is a global trend. I argue that this is happening everywhere and to everyone. I argue that this is happening in religion and in politics, uh, in national politics and in international politics is affecting the IMF and the World Bank and the big multilateral organizations. And is also affecting uh, local governments uh, uh, and very specific uh, counties uh, and uh, small government. It is affecting companies. And you can find manifestations uh, of this decay of power in the corporate world. And I am aware that that is a very uh, controversial statement. Uh, And you can find it in the military and in labor unions, and in culture, and in sports. And the book tries to argue this. As I was writing the book, I had two important sources of insecurity and self-consciousness. I was very insecure because I was writing about power. And sometimes I felt like an idiot because power is a subject that's that huge. It has been uh, treated and developed and, and, and written about by the great minds of, of humanity forever. There is a lot written in power and uh, a lot that is interesting, that it's very, very good. So how dare I uh, start f- talking and writing about power? You know, Who am I uh, to, to imagine that I have something to say about power? So that, that was, of course, put yourself in my shoes and you know, waking up in the morning, blank screen, and here I am writing about power, having all this baggage, uh, and this uh, apprehension. So think about that, and therefore there is a a theme there. The other uh, uh, self-conscious and and, and, uh, source of anxiety and insecurity for me is that I knew, and I still know, that I'm saying things that are going against the current, that are going against the narrative. We're living at an age in which the great debate is how the 1% in the United States, for example, or if you want in the world, the wealthiest 1% is uh, capturing very, very large chunks of wealth and income. And getting very powerful, and getting into politics, and buying politicians, and uh, creating packs, and uh, influencing policies in ways that are good for them and bad for everyone else. And the 99% is raising now in protest, uh, and, and income inequality is becoming more acute uh, in a lot of places. And so, I was again. So put yourself in my shoes, trying to argue that the contrary is happening. Uh, and uh, now. I am not arguing that uh, income inequality and wealth inequality has not become more acute in some places in the world, especially in the United States and places like Russia, China, uh, are just uh, you know income inequality is becoming more acute. That is happening. What I will argue uh, is that uh, that's not the whole story, and that uh, and we will discuss that. So, regardless of these two apprehensions, I did go ahead and write the book. Um, And uh, and I decided that my only hope, uh, my only line of defense, is to let the data speak. That instead of giving opinions and instead of using arguments, I needed to rely on data, statistics, evidence, studies social science, the best available uh, research uh, that I could get my hands on. And that is why the book took seven years to write. Mm-hmm. Not, not just because I am a, a slow writer, which I am, uh, but also because I was very, very aware that I needed to find the best uh, data I could to, to, to support this. The, the book is... Organized, you know, there is some an, an introductory chapters, and then there are chapters for each of the sectors that I study. So there's a chapter on the military, a chapter on national politics, a chapter in geopolitics, on, uh, and so on and so forth. And each chapter has a lot of information. And then there is some uh, con- concluding chapters with the proverbial question so what? You know, if, if all this is true, who, who cares? And, and, and so what? And then what to do with it, and how do you live in a world uh, where power is decaying. So that's more or less the structure of the book. I'm not going to go through uh, each one of the chapters, but I'm going to give you a taste of some of the the statistics and some of the arguments that I use. Um, Think, for example, about one one natural area where power is so evident and is so part of the very nature of, of, of activity is the military. It's matters of war uh, and the military and the wielding of brutal power. It's the exercise of violence. So what's happening to that? Well, uh, first is that the central theme that is happening there is that big budgets do not buy and do not guarantee national security anymore. Uh, 9-11, the estimated cost of 9-11 was half a million dollars. The reaction, the consequences, and the effects of 9-11 plus the reaction of the United States, we're still counting, and it's in the the trillions. Um, So, and there is a lot of asymmetry. You know, of course, that the tragic story of uh, improvised explosive devices. Uh, It is now, uh, it accounts for uh, the largest number of casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, These are very, very basic, simple uh, uh, explosives. Uh, that are activated with very cheap uh, cell phones or uh, garage door openers. And the Pentagon has literally spent billions of dollars uh, in trying to create uh, a countermeasure uh, that will uh, minimize the damage. Uh, and this brings me, of course, to the whole notion of asymmetric war the war, uh, wars between two sides, one that is uh, more powerful in terms of uh, technology and money and number of uh, the, the size of the troops and, and equipment and all that. And there is a fascinating study by a Harvard scholar named Ivana Regintofts. He studied asymmetric wars since 1850 to 1949 uh, by measuring very carefully uh, these conflicts and uh, measuring the, which one was the weak side and which one was the strong side. And he discovered, 1850 to 1949, that the weak side won 12% of the time. Then he continued the study from 1950 to 1998 and saw conflicts, asymmetric conflicts in that period. And he discovered that the, number, the percentage uh, of uh, uh, win, uh, victories by the weak side went from 12% to 55%. So between 1950 to 1998, the probability that the weak side would win was higher. And in fact, it became more probable. And we have seen manifestations of this uh, everywhere. In the military world, now victory doesn't mean victory. What uh, insurgents and uh, new forms of combatants and new forms of war uh, are creating is the denial of victory to the big armies. So the Taliban are not going to win uh, over the coalition forces in the United States. But surely they are denying the coalition forces of the mightiest army ever assembled. They're denying victory. It would be very hard to argue that the United States and the allies in Afghanistan are winning. They may not be losing, but they're not winning. And who is defeating them? Who is defeating them? Well, the Taliban. And who are the Taliban? Well, uh, they're not well-armed, uh, they're getting more sophisticated, but you could not even imagine the lack of proportion between the resources, money, sophistication, and technology that the two sides have. Think about Somali pirates. These are uh, former fishermen, that, uh, and it's a very interesting, ramific story here about how the livelihood was impaired by, by all kinds of Factors from climate change to industrial waste that was dumped in their waters and so on. And so they go out in their rickety boats with outboard motors and uh, all Kalashnikovs, k 47, and rocket propelled grenades, and just take to, take to the seas, and they are able to hijack some of the biggest ships in the world, including oil tankers and including all kinds of ships and they have been doing great business you know they they just get money in exchange for returning and allowing uh... uh the owners to recover the big ships and uh, in fact there is a booming economy in kenya uh... neighboring uh... somalia uh... in which real estate is booming in part because somali pirates now have the money to buy condos <laughs> and so the world has reacted to this and the world has uh... Uh, deployed in the Gulf of Aden and, and in that area, uh, one of the most sophisticated flotilla and, uh, uh, of, of, of military vessels of naval. It's a naval force that is one of the most sophisticated ever in history. And everyone is there, flying and, and patrolling those waters. Everyone, I mean the European Union's and the Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia and China and Turkey. and uh, You name them and they're there. Uh, patrolling those waters. And they're not, uh, you know, the numbers go up and down, but the pirates are still there. And they're, and they're still very risky uh, to just go through those waters uh, without protection and without all kinds of... So we're talking about a very primitive form of, uh, of war, if you want, or facing uh, one of the 21st century's most advanced technology, and they are, Uh, they're denying them victory. Again, I'm not suggesting that the pirates are going to win. It is clear that the pirates are denying victory to the most sophisticated modern armies, uh, modern naval naval forces uh, assembled. So that's one example. Let me give you another example in politics. National politics. Uh, What what we are witnessing in, in the world is several things. First, life is becoming harder for tyrants and non democracies and the number of uh, of uh, non democracies is plummeting uh, the, uh, the the number of uh, i 'm looking for my notes on uh, the number of states that uh, uh, were oh here it is in one thousand nine hundred and ninety the world had uh, uh, hundred. In 1990, the world had 69 electoral democracies, 69 countries in which the government was elected by the people. Today is 117. Today, half of the world, half of humanity lives uh, in regimes where the government is elected by the people. Half of the world. And that does not include China who, as we know, uh, is an authoritarian regime. If, you, if someday China democratizes, you are talking about a world in which about 75 to 80% of humanity lives under the rule of elected governments. Not only then we have more democracies, well, first we have more countries, then we have more democracies, but these democracies, then, are, then there is devolution, the in which uh, there is a lot of power going to state and local governments. And we are seeing also a lot of instances where the regions are claiming to be independent. Uh, we see in, in, Sp- in Spain, the Basque Country, or the Catalans, or uh, the Wallonians in uh, Belgium, or the Northern Italians uh, uh, in India. We, you know, there is, you know, even Texas is thinking of. Uh. <laughs> uh, and so you, you, you see these trends. Uh, You see also governments that now have to contend with independent central banks that have their own independence and can do more or less what they want independently of uh, the executive branch or the government. Uh, You see activist judges. You see in all these countries, you can see the judicial uh, power becoming far more independent, far more active, and getting involved in decisions that in the past were the exclusive prerogative either of the legislature or of the executive, of the president or the head of state. And of course, you see uh, the myriad uh, entities that are tying down governments, like Oliver and the, all these uh limiting uh, the activities and the degrees of freedoms of, of government. Now, again, I'm not arguing that power, the governments are not more powerful in many aspects. Uh, but what I am arguing is that uh, those in charge can do less with that and, are, in fact, are more transient. And uh, in the book, you will find statistics about turnover rates. About, uh, it is becoming very slippery to be powerful. If you are a minister, uh, your average tenure in government is lower than ever. Everywhere. And the same is true for, for CEOs, but I'll get to that in a sec. Uh, so, we have governments that are more constrained in a variety of ways. Um, and, for example, uh, in the, the richest, demo- the wealthiest democracies in the world, the members of the OECD, uh, which is this club of, of wealthy democracies, it, 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 there are 30 of them. I'm sorry, there are 34 of them. Of those 34, only four have a head of state, a president or a prime minister, that, has this, that belongs to the same party that controls the parliament. In 30, out of the 34, the opposition runs uh, uh, the parliament, and the head of state has to contend with that. And the United States is also a good example, right? And uh, that is creating, uh, very frequently, uh, situations where democracies are not delivering, situations where democracies are slow, uh, the decisions uh, are diluted. The minimum common denominator has to be uh, found. uh, And that often is not enough to tackle the problems uh, effectively. Frank Fukuyama, uh, who used to work in this building, I think, uh, years ago, uh, has recently labeled this phenomenon uh, vitocracies. There is an emergence of vitocracies, meaning democracies that are plagued, full of small power centers with the ability to veto, to block, to stop, delay, water down decisions. So there are these systems, these political systems, in which everyone, not everyone, but a lot of actors, has just enough power to block others. But no one has enough power to put through an agenda, to see through that some uh, initiative is uh, implemented. And you know, sequester, right? That's all I need to tell you for you to understand what I'm talking about. A highly irrational, crazy policy that was put in place just because no one believed um, that uh, that when the time came, they were going to go through with it because it was so crazy and irrational. And yet the moment arrived and it turns out that no one had the power to stop this. And if you want an even more extreme example, think Italy. You know, it's very easy to dismiss the Italians as having a government that never works, but the country more or less works. But that's not true. Uh, They just had an election, and the result of the election is that they cannot govern. They cannot form a government, even though they had an election. Italy is always an extreme case of what I'm describing. But it it has a lot of elements that you can find in other places. A lot of countries are becoming Italy, not with the drama and the sometimes uh, the <laughs> how funny it is, uh, and uh, but but there are elements of Italianess to uh, the politics of a lot of democratic countries. Uh, uh, let me give you another example. Let me perhaps turn to uh, the. The corporate sector, where, uh, of course, I, as I said, there is a lot of concentration, and uh, and my argument there is twofold. First, again, I said I relied on data, and there is a, a very interesting study, an economet- a highly sophisticated econometric study, that that looked at companies at the top, at the, the top twenty percent in sectors, and uh, so. The study looked, uh, if you had a company 20 years ago, and that company was at the top 20% in your industry, in your business sector, the probability that you would still be at the 20% uh, cohort or or quintile uh, after five years would would be something like 10%, 90%. So more or less, if you were at the top 20%, you were sure. You you were secure in that position. And then when the study looked uh, uh, over time, that uh, number was three three times larger. So it became far more probable that if you were at the top of the league five years hence, we would be out of it. The same is happening with CEOs. The turnover rate uh, uh, at CEOs, the number of CEOs that are getting fired has no precedent in history. It is, of course, being the CEO of a large company is very comfortable. You get paid obscene amounts of money, and you are very powerful for a short time. And for a, time, for a short time that is becoming shorter and shorter. There is a study about uh, reputational accidents in the private sector. Uh, it is done by, by a company that specializes on the value of brands and brand values. And they, they, they did this. Long, large-scale study. And they discovered that in 1990, the probability that a company would have a brand-impairing accident was 20%. Something would happen that would make your brand lose value. And then 20 years later, it's 82%. So that means that you're running a large company, the probability that something will happen that will damage your reputation and lower the value of your stock, the value of your company, is almost certain. It's 82%. Of course, you can recover. And we we saw what happened with Toyota, for example. Uh, And there are other examples that you can think of in which companies recover, but it's happening. and uh, there is the f- very interesting example of the Exxon Valdez. Uh, remember, in 1989, this large tanker uh, just had an accident in the pristine waters of Alaska and started uh, a big oil spill. When that happened, the shares of Exxon uh, dropped 4% in uh, something like four months. When, uh, When the same, something similar to that happened to BP in 2010, uh, the value uh, of the shares of BP went down 13% in seven trading sessions. Mm -hmm. So the speed and the impact of these uh, accidents is uh, far larger, it's far more important, and it's far much faster. And I have more examples, churches, um, it, it used to be, Uh, One of the challenges of the the new pope, of Pope Francis, is to curb and contain uh, the the, the Roman Catholic Church is losing market share in the market market for souls around the world. (laughs) Uh, In in Africa and Latin America and and Asia, uh, countries that were traditionally uh, absolutely in in a majority were Roman Catholics are no longer. According to the census in Brazil in 1970, uh, the number of Catholics, uh, the people that declared themselves Catholics, was was 90%. Uh, The same census in 2010 is 65%. Uh, In Brazil, uh, there's about half a million Catholics that leave that the church every year. Same is happening in Guatemala. <laughs> it is a country that is now, uh, by a large majority, uh, Episcopalian and, and, and Evangelical and so on. The same is happening in the Philippines. The same is, uh, is happening elsewhere in Asia. Uh, and, and I can go on. In the, lab, in the labor unions, is also, there's also plenty of examples uh, of that. So the question is, why? Why, why is this happening? The immediate automatic reaction that most people have uh, as an answer to that question is, of course, is the internet. It's social media. And that's it. And I deeply disagree with that interpretation. Uh, The internet and social media are tools. And tools need users. And users have motivation and direction. And that motivation and that direction comes from different places and for different reasons. And they come, in this case, from tectonic shifts in the structure of the world. And there is a long list of them uh, that have to do with the world's demography, the way we live, the way we move, the way uh, we behave, uh, how affluent uh, we are, and how all of that is distributed and is moving, and the way we are thinking and uh, our mindsets. So there is a long list of factors, uh, but, uh, and, and I group them in three that I call the three revolutions, the more revolution, the mobility revolution, and the mentality revolution. And these three, and I will explain what, what I mean by that, but each one of them uh, makes the shields that protected the powerful weaker. In order, When you are powerful, it's because you have something that no one else has, or that few others have. And that uh, challengers have a hard time replicating or attacking you or displacing you from your power because you have something that is quite unique. It can be history. It can be a technology. It can be a lot of money. It can be a lot of weapons. It can be a lot of voters. It can be a lot of believers. It can be size. It can be a lot of things. And those things, those assets, create protections, create a shield that make. Challengers to the incumbent make life very hard for them, and it 's difficult for them to displace them and to replace them and to contest them. Well, the three revolutions are changing that. The more revolution is the fact is recognizing the fact that we live in an age of profusion, in an age of abundance. We have more people, more countries, more cities, more political parties, more guns and more medicines more terrorist networks and uh, more criminal, international criminals, but also we have more charities and more philanthropy, uh, and more of everything. Today And mostly we have more people. Today we have 2 billion people more than two decades ago. But not only we are more, but we are wealthier in general. Uh, The global global GDP today is five times uh, larger than it was two decades ago. Per capita income is three and a half times larger. The World Bank just lifted 36 countries out of the category of low income and moved them to middle income countries. The middle class is the largest growing segment of humanity. That's a very interesting conversation because, of course, in Europe and the United States and elsewhere, the middle class is shrinking, is feeling embattled, is being constrained, insecure about the future. But don't tell that to the Chinese, the the Indians, the Brazilians, the Mexicans, the Turkish, uh, uh, and so on, where the middle classes are expanding quite rapidly. Uh, So we have more people. These people are more affluent. These people are younger. These, we are living in the youngest planet ever, meaning uh, the a- average age of the, of the world's population is the youngest in history. Um, and again, there is a skewed distribution here, right? Because in Europe and the United States and in Russia, people are get, getting older. These are graying countries. But in the large majority of the world, people are younger. And not only they are more, they are wealthier, they are younger, they are now living in cities. For the first time in human history, there is more people living in cities than in farms. And all of that, I argue in the book, has consequences for the way power is used, and how power is constrained, and what are the limits of power. And uh, that's the more revolution. But then there is the mobility revolution, and that is intuitively obvious. Uh, not only we have more of everything, but that more moves all the time more. Uh, goods and services and money and pandemics and financial crises, and uh, ideas and information, everything moves, moves, moves. And power needs captive audiences. Power needs a domain in which is exercised. And that is also becoming uh, more difficult. And finally, uh, the the mentality revolution. And that is the changes, profound changes in mindset, expectations, values, uh, aspirations, uh, and in general, rules uh, of behavior. Um, One of, to me, most fascinating examples is that divorce rates among the elderly in India are soaring. Those are marriages that were arranged marriages 30, 40 years ago. And mostly initiated by the women, the divorces. The divorces. So they're walking out. They are no longer willing to take care of the husband, of the old husband. Um, and the same is happening in some of the Gulf countries. Women are walking away and getting divorces at rates that are, have no precedent. And there is a lot of statistical evidence about how patterns of behavior among genders and how uh, different values uh, about how to to rely and how to accept or not accept the notion that you're going to do this because that's the way it's always been done. That phrase is no longer carrying any, uh, a lot of weight. And that's true in families, but it's true also in corporations and the relationship between uh, employers and employees, uh, vendors uh, and suppliers and companies and their distribution channels. And, uh, in the military, even in the military, it is happening. So this change of mindsets is also affecting power. The more revolution overwhelms the barriers to that protected the powerful, the mobility revolution helps challengers circumvent the barriers, and the mentality revolution helps uh, the challengers undermine the barriers. And together, the three of them put them together, shake them, put them in a situation in which there is rapid change, and you get power that is easier to get, harder to use, and much faster to lose. Let me stop here. And uh, get your question, and we can get to the uh, so what and what to do. Thank you. How has uh, the increased communication affected your, your, uh, the uh, dissemination? Very much so, and there is no doubt uh, that it's a very important element. I didn't mention it uh, because I, uh, for two reasons, mostly. Uh, because people tend to ascribe all of the explanation to that. So when you try, when I try to explain what's going on, the immediate reaction of people is say, well, you know, it's the internet and for the fact that we are now better informed, which is absolutely true. It would be foolish to deny that. But it's my way of uh, um, explaining that yes, those are very powerful explanations and important ones, but let's not, uh, by concentrating on those explanations, ignore these other factors that I I discussed. But surely the the information the revolution is very important. How do you see the
0: practical consequences of what you're saying? Because it seems like the natural outcome is going to be less stability, less order, less uh, Effective running of the world societies, etc.
1: One needs to recognize that uh, before getting to the downside, uh, let's recognize the many reasons we have to welcome these trends. We have now more opportunity. This is a world of uh, more opportunity, more opportunity for excluded groups, more opportunity for voters, for for uh, entrepreneurs, for individuals. You know, there is more opportunity, and there is. And I also welcome the fact that it's a less secure world for monopolies and for tyrants and for autocratic governments. Uh, So there's a lot to celebrate. But then, as you suggest, rightly, uh, there is a downside to it, which I I don't quite mind that much uh, about what's happening in the private sector. Let them compete, and hyper-competition in the private sector is all for the good. But I worry about what's happening uh, with these trends in national politics. Because you end up with vitocracies where nothing gets done. And uh, you get uh, situations in which uh, the the disappointment and frustration with democracy, then um, it's pervasive. And then it creates uh, the conditions for the search for the proverbial uh, savior. Uh, the man or the woman that is going to come and solve the problems and the, the you know the, the strong-fisted uh, kind of um, uh, savior, and I think that's very dangerous. Um, and uh, then there is another downside to it, which happens at the geopolitical level, at the international level, and that is that weak countries that are weak governments. Even very powerful, very strong governments, like the government of the United States or others, that have uh, governments with weak mandates, uh, have a very hard time uh, dealing with with problems that require collective action at the international level. We are living in in a world, briefly, we are living in a world in which the number of problems that no country can tackle alone is proliferating the long list of issues that escape intervention and effective intervention by one country, even if it's a superpower. More and more, we need several countries or many countries working together. So the demand for that is soaring, and the supply is either stagnating or declining. The world doesn't seem good at working together and delivering effective responses to the problems. In economics, when demand uh, outstrips supply by a large margin, you end up with inflation. In geopolitics, you end up with a lot of dead people and instability. <laughs> and, uh, and, there, and I claim in the book that the reason why uh, there is such a difficulty in getting the world to, to work together is because you are dealing with governments with weak mandates. Statistically, if you look at uh, you know landslide victories in elections are becoming an endangered species. If you trace statistically the number of elections since 1970 to today, in, in places where elections are free and fair, democratic, and you know, follow the rules of the game, you will see that the margins through which uh, uh, the margins of victory have been shrinking, and that how uh, landslides, you know, var- margins of significant margins, uh, are essentially still happen, but they are ex- the exceptions. And when you have governments that don't have large margins, don't have a mandate, how can they sit at a table where inevitably some concessions, costs, and, and, and sacrifices will have to be made in order for the common global good? That's a very hard, uh, politically hard um, message to give.
0: Hi, my name is Dennis Bullock. Uh, my question actually sort of piggybacks onto that gentleman's question and your, your answer to it. Um, with the diffusion of power, Uh, on on political levels with all these new opportunities for groups, um, what would you say is the predictable, is there a predictable consequence to the nation-state system itself because this diffusion of power creates a sort of inertia I think that you're referring to as far as being able to make big decisions being able to bring lots of groups together to to go forward in in a unified way Um, for large especially nation-states, heterogeneous nation-states um, what's the consequence of that? Is, is, there, is this going to trend toward smaller nation states or smaller political groupings in the future?
1: That's a very sophisticated question the, because it deals with a very... There's a fa- fascinating question, which is what is the optimal size of a country in the 21st century? And my answer to that is that um, politically, the answer is... Small. Economically is large. So if you want to be successful in, in, in economic terms uh, in the 21st century, you better have a large country with a large internal market uh, or you know a lot of large things. But if you want to be politically successful, you have to be small. Switzerland is a good example of both, uh, of, uh, of a country that is economically successful and politically successful too. But in general, there is a contradiction between the two. Uh, and I, I do believe, however, that I, I don't think that the nation state is going anywhere. I believe we is gonna, the nation state is going to be with us for a long time. Uh, but it's going to be plagued by a lot of these difficulties of keeping it together, holding it together, and acting it, uh, behaving as a, as a single entity. So you may end up with a country that looks like a country, but has units that behave in very different ways. And we're seeing it around the world. There's examples of that.
0: Hi, I'm Harriet Epstein,
1: and I have a comment. Uh, you said there are 117 democracies at present. I think that's a misnomer. I, uh, I think they may be 117 countries that have elected governments, but they're far from democracies. For example, Egypt. I think we need to coin another... Uh, word for
0: these countries that have elections that are either corrupted or to begin with or don't fulfill the democratic ideals once they're in office. The second question, the real question for you is
1: the United States. Uh, There's a lot of power in Congress, but it's, it's gridlocked. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't advance, it doesn't move. Would you like to comment on that? And there is a very thorny uh, um, debate among experts about what what do you call a democracy and how do you define that a country, you know, Egypt, you would call that a democracy, your example. So that's a very thorny, very complicated debate. For this purpose, and the the numbers I quoted are from Freedom House. And they have a report, you can look it on the web, and they go at great length in trying to define and be precise and objective and scientific about the definition. So if you, have a, if you don't like the number, call them. Don't call me. <laughs> uh, but I recognize your point, And I recognize that countries that we call democracies sometimes don't feel like democracies. And that's a very good point. Uh, the second, your second point is what to do with Congress and what to do. And I think that what happens in Congress is, um, has a lot to do with uh, political parties. And that's a big theme of my concluding chapter. And uh, uh, it has to do with uh, the very bad couple of decades that political parties have had around the world. So when I give this talk to college students, I tell them, you know, uh, there is a, a butterfly in Indonesia that is endangered, and I'm launching an NGO to go and save the, the, the butterfly. In, how many of you would want to join me? Inevitably, several hands. You know, they're 20-year-old. They're ready to save the endangered the, the, the butterfly. <laughs> then I say, well, no, I made it up. I, there is not, I don't know if there is a butterfly or not, but that was, I just wanted to test your willingness to join a non-governmental organization. Then I said, but this is true. This, is, this one is for real. I'm going to join a political party. How many of you would want to come with me and join a political party? And they run for the exit. <laughs> they, have, they want nothing to do with political parties. It, so political parties have a very, very bad brand. They're not attractive. They're not interested. People that want to change the world, people that are activists, people that have a passion to make things better, would never think of uh, channeling those energies through political parties. And that's true here, and it's true in Italy, and in Europe, and, and in a lot of democracies, political parties have had a very bad run and in, in this repute. And I believe that uh, it's very important to bring them back. I think it's very important that political parties become more alluring, more enticing, that people that want to change the world join them. And uh, there is no more powerful tool for changing society that government.
0: Do you see this as a transitional phenomenon or are we doomed to a state of perpetual chaos? Because I think um, the three M's that you're talking about have just run into conflict with our previous institutions and maybe the institutions will change in response. So elderly Indian men might start treating their wives better. And we will all wake up in the morning and vote on every issue using the latest technology, so there might not be any autocracy uh,
1: left. Yes, uh, I, uh, yes, and so my uh, uh, this then uh, you know it falls into the realm of predictions and intuitions that you cannot justify, but just gut feelings. Uh, my gut feeling starts with recognizing that we have lived in the last 20 years in an age of unprecedented innovation. Our lives have been transformed in ways that have no precedent, And they go from decoding the DNA to the number of celestial bodies that we now know. In the last 20 years, there were more celestial bodies discovered than in the last 2,000 years. Uh, And then think about, uh, since you wake up in the morning, the way you eat, the way you read the newspaper, the way you communicate, the way you date, the way you end your marriage, all of that has been touched uh, by innovations of every kind. So we live every day in a world uh, that has uh, transformed our lives profoundly through innovations. In everything. In everything except the way we govern ourselves. One area that is stagnant, Uh, that where innovation is not happening is governing. And I because I think it's untenable, because I think it cannot continue, I am an optimist. And I think we are about to witness a very interesting wave of innovation in the ways we govern ourselves. Here we are in California where ideas sometimes start and spread across the United States. It seems to me that the vitocracy in California is gone now. Am I correct? And if I am, is that a harbinger for Washington? I have been admiring um, the efforts and the way you in California have um, overhauled things and changed things. Uh, and there are several initiatives, and there are people in the room that are, you know, launching very interesting uh, initiatives to rethink uh, and redo and uh, uh, and, and so. They, my short answer is: I hope so. Yes, yes, and. Uh, the demonstration effects in these things are very, very powerful and very important. And California, you know, California has more and more uh, now uh, attracted the attention of people that wanna know how to do this and how to, to break the gridlock and how to get things moving. You are still far from what you need and what's needed, but you are much, much better from what you were just a, a few years back. And that's, that's all for the good, so yes. Will it get too bad, too extreme in Washington? I have learned I have learned uh, not to predict how dysfunctional Washington can get.
0: <laughs> a lot of the comments that you've shared uh, made me think of the research of social scientist uh, Manuel Castells, who's done a lot of work on network theory. Yeah, and uh, one of his uh, thesis is theses is that. Uh, as nation states become increasingly unable to respond to the challenges of globalization that are affecting their domestic constituents, those nation states are losing political legitimacy. And in an effort to restore that, nation states may evolve into what he coined a network state where global civil society can channel its influence in a functional way to nation states. I wanted to get your opinion on what you think is the likelihood of global civil society organizing itself amongst all these different interests in a way that can restore some sort of political legitimacy and order to the system?
1: Thanks for the question because it allows me to say how deeply I disagree with Manuel Castells <laughs> 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 on that. Um, I think networks are great uh, if you, uh, for some uh, things. They're not great to govern. So networks are great uh, to innovate and to disrupt. Mostly, networks are very good at disrupting. They're not good at governing. Uh, show me a network that governs uh, that you wouldn't like to live under. Uh, think about, for example, what happened with the Occupy Wall Street. A network that was amazing in its reach. It was, you know, 2,600 cities around the world had this very strange, all of a sudden, mushrooming tents. People living in tents in the main squares and communicating in, in ways that are very similar. They were all leaderless. They had a similar agenda. They had a lot of things in common, from Kuala Lumpur to Madrid and to uh, Tel Aviv to Washington, everywhere, this, this movement wanting you know, to change things. And what happened? Well, it ended up being a cathartic movement. It ended up being a place where the, there was a lot of energy, a lot of political energy, but that energy was not connected to the wheels. Uh, and so there was no movement, no, no traction. They, you know, imagine, imagine if that energy, instead of being the network, would have been channeled to a structure like a political party and change the political party by injecting the agenda in the political party. So. Networks great for disrupting, bad for governing. And many of our problems are global. Let's say climate change, let's say maybe energy, population. Would you advocate a strong world government? And black helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> what you will find in the book is that I am proposing something that I call minilateralism. So, briefly, if you look at the list of problems that need collective action. There are, you mentioned some, nuclear proliferation is others and others dealing with failed states, uh, you know, failed states that need collective action to to contain uh, the the, the spread of uh, whatever, you know, they they irradiate and so on. So there's a a list. And normally that list uh, generates, each one of those problems generates a meeting of 192 countries. You know the UN meets and says, "Has you know, let's let's talk about nuclear proliferation, or let's talk about global warming," and and then nothing, not not a lot happens in these summits, right? So nothing happens. But if and I did the the, I looked at the list and I looked at how many countries were uh, the main culprits or the main solutions. And the number is never more than 15. You get 15 countries, and you're going to make a big dent on the problem. You're not going to solve 100%, but you know, with 5, 10, 7, depending on the issue, you're going to solve 80% of the problem. That's good enough for me. And so my suggestion and my proposal is let's get the smallest, the, the smallest number of nations that have a bearing in the problem, either as a cause or as a solution. Put them in a room and try to get a solution, an agreement out of them. And then if the remainder 180 countries want to join, invite them to join. That of course is a very defective proposal because it's anti democratic, it is exclusionary, reeks of colonialism. Uh, and then the question is how you know who took how dare you? you know who? Uh, why? Why excluding me? You know I'm, I'm Guinea-Bissau, and uh, I should be sitting at a table, even if I, you know, I have two hundred thousand inhabitants or something like that. Um, so, but and my answer is that I would rather have an, a, a way of dealing with this that is uh, has a, a significant democratic deficit but get something done with problems that are boiling over and becoming emergencies, that being very inclusionary, being very democratic, being very fair and inclusive, and nothing happens. And, uh, and again, that's a very usual kind of dilemma where we are never in, faced with these kinds of things with uh, uh, picking between the wonderful and the horrible. It is normally between the horrible and the more horrible. Uh, and, and that's the, the challenging of governing. Thank you very much. All.